So we live in a world where people are investigating faith, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. There is an entire world of people who don't know the Lord. And for many who are seeking, they want evidence. They want some type of proof that this God we serve, this Jesus we call Savior, is real. Now, I want to make a note right now. The burden of proof for God's existence is not on us. There is no scripture that says we are commissioned to prove his existence. The burden of proof is not on us. And I am not supporting any type of pharisaical behavior so that we go out in the streets and pray as loud as we can for people to hear us or that we do acts of service so that we can be recognized. That's not what this is about. The evidence of our salvation is first between us and God. Then it becomes a witness of the gospel to others. We need to live our salvation in a way so that we are having a transformational experience with the Lord. We are growing with him. We are growing in him. And as we live like that, hopefully we are giving non-believers an opportunity to experience the gospel as well. I recently read a quote that said, I would rather be a reason people turn to God than a reason people turn away from him. Evidence tells a story. We've not only been commissioned to spread the gospel, but there is an expectation that we present the gospel purely. And so I believe that these two questions are so valid for the body of Christ. How are we portraying the evidence of our salvation before God and others? And what story are we telling? I'm going to compare two situations in Scripture right now, two stories. We're going to jump over to the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19, and then we're going to jump over to the jailer in Acts 16. So in Matthew chapter 19, I'll go ahead and read it. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, all these I've kept, said the young man, what do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, let's pause. He doesn't mean perfect the way that we use the word perfect. He's not talking about being flawless. The word perfect here in the Greek translation means to be complete or fulfilled. So what Jesus is saying is if you want to be fulfilled, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Now let's look at Acts chapter 16. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains 
came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Okay, we've got two very similar stories here. The rich young ruler we can assess is most likely Jewish because he had knowledge of the commandments. But what's very interesting is that the rich young ruler uses a term that is nowhere found in the Old Testament, and that term is eternal life. You will not find eternal life as a phrase in the Old Testament. So now we have to wonder, well, where did he hear that? He must have been listening. We can assume maybe he heard Jesus teach it in another, at another time. Maybe somebody else heard it and was telling the rich young ruler about it. Or maybe the rich young ruler overheard other people talking about it. We don't know. But all we do know is it didn't come from Old Testament study. He was probably listening. In Jewish history, some wealthy people actually buried their wealth with them, thinking they could take it to wherever they thought they were going. So then we have to wonder, well, when he heard this term eternal life, was he taking it literally? Did he literally think that physically he would have eternal life? We don't know. Now, the jailer was trained to punish people for speaking the gospel, if you were out in public talking about this Jesus figure or any portion of the gospel, this jailer was trained to put you in prison. And so now that these people are in prison and this earthquake comes and the chains are shaken loose and the doors are opened, the, prisoner recog or the, the jailer recognizes this and his first, his first instinct is to take a, his sword and take his life. Why? Because in Roman law, it stated that if you as a guard let anybody escape, you must now suffer their sentence. So he would rather take, on his, take his own life than take on the sentence of these prisoners. Now, Paul knew that law because the first thing out of Paul's mouth was, don't harm yourself, we're still here. So, <clears throat> we have to assume at some point, this jailer runs to Paul and Silas and asks him a very similar question that the rich young ruler asked Jesus. He must have been listening. People are always listening. Now, they may not understand what they're hearing, but we have to realize that people are listening and watching. Evidence tells a story. Now, what's interesting in both of these stories is the question that the jailer and the rich young ruler asked. The rich young ruler goes to Jesus and says, 
what must I do to have eternal life? And the jailer comes to Paul and Silas and says, what must I do to be saved? They're both looking for what? But salvation begins with a who. Salvation begins with a who. When the rich man questioned Jesus, the first thing he did was turn attention to God. Then he told him about the commandments. When the jailer questioned Paul and Silas, the first thing they did was tell him about Jesus. Then, it says, they spoke the word to him and explained baptism to him. They were turning attention to the who. The problem with the world is that they're only looking for what they can do. They don't have a concept of who. The world has created its own theology. Let's just be kind to each other. Let's just be good people. Let's love each other. Let's take care of the needy. Let's, good golly, that sounds like the gospel, doesn't it? You know, the world actually has a lot of biblical principles. The problem is, is they don't want to give credit to who is worthy of those acts of service. The problem with only following the what of the gospel is that we miss out on the relationship of who the gospel is about. Theology without Jesus is just religion. And the world is full of religions, all man-made, but there is only one gospel, one true gospel, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anything else is just religion. We have one gospel. Salvation begins with a who. Now, the rich young ruler, he seemed to be proud of his obedience to the commandments. I've served all of them. What do I still lack? He's still looking for what? And when Jesus offers him who, he rejected it. Salvation is free, but it will cost you your life. The ruler didn't want a relationship with Jesus. As long as we're presenting the gospel purely, we are not responsible for people's response to it. As long as we present the gospel purely, people's response is not our responsibility. Jesus did a great job of presenting the gospel to this man, but he didn't want anything to do with it. He only wanted what? Sadly, this seems to happen a lot in the body of Christ. We get so caught up in ministry that the what becomes more important than the who. I once heard a quote that we spend more time worshiping the ways of Jesus than we do worshiping Jesus. How can we tell if we're falling into this trap? Well, I can give you some questions to inventory your heart. Did you get to come to church today, or did you have to come to church today? How about this worship experience? Do you have worship like this on a weekly basis, throughout the week, I mean, or is it only on a Sunday morning? How much quality time are we spending with Jesus outside of church? Is our relationship personal? Or is it task-driven? Is there transformation? Do we have a transformational relationship or is it transactional? Are we just checking off boxes for all the accomplishments we've made? When I was in seminary, there was a pastor in class 
one time and, and he spoke to the class and just shared a personal testimony. He said, listen, I have a very successful ministry. I've built a very big church at the expense of missing the majority of my children's lives. This happens way too often in the body of Christ. Now, he was sorrowfully repentant, but he missed a lot of his children's childhood because he was putting what before who? And I see it all the time. We fall in love with Jesus, but then we start thinking about what we can do for him, and the what takes over the who, and then we find ourselves completely focused on what we can do. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a what component. What we do is very important. James clearly said in 2.26, faith without deeds means nothing. There has to be some sense of action. This is why Jesus told the rich man, you need to follow the commandments. This is why Paul and Silas spoke the word to the jailer and he was baptized. Salvation begins with a who, but it's followed by a what. We cannot neglect the who and focus solely on the what because theology without Jesus is just religion. And there is no transformational growth in religion. Listen, we can have the biggest churches, the greatest ministries on the face of the earth, but if people are not encountering Jesus, then what we're doing is no different than what the world is doing. Evidence tells a story. Let me flip the script. I hear people all the time say, I believe in Jesus. I believe that church is, is a great place to be. I believe in the Bible. Okay, that, that's good. Is there anything beyond that belief? I mean, I hear it all the time about what people believe. Evidence is not generated just by believing in something. We can believe in God, the Bible, the cross, the resurrection. We can believe in every single thing that this word says, but belief alone does not generate the evidence of our salvation. If the evidence of our salvation was solely based on what we believe, the devil would be saved. If the evidence of our salvation was solely based on what we believe, the devil would be saved. And I tell you, he, he'd be really saved because he knows that word inside and out. He knows it well enough to know that he needs to manipulate it and take us away from it. But that's a scary thought to think that the devil would be saved simply by a belief system. And so we have to make sure that we don't get caught up into that mentality. To just think that we can believe and that makes us saved? No, it does not. We can't just believe and think that that's enough to portray evidence of salvation and tell the right story. We have to practice what we believe. We've got to put it into practice. There needs to be a balance between the who and the what of salvation. Salvation begins with that who. Salvation is the opportunity to engage and have transformational experiences with Jesus. And then the what is our service to him. Every relationship has to have that kind of balance between a who and a what. And when we balance 
our salvation, with Jesus and our acts of service and obedience to him. This now gives us the foundation to tell the story of where, to tell the story of where our salvation is leading people. This is the story that was announced in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve fell. God speaks to Adam, Eve, and the serpent, and he unveils for them what life is going to be like after the fall. It's in Genesis chapter 3, 15 through 24. The story of redemption is painted for us right there in that passage. After the fall in the garden, God makes it very clear to the serpent that there will be enmity, which is hatred, between the woman's offspring and him. He explains that there's going to be warfare, a crushing of his head and a bruising of our heel. Life is going to be a battle between the enemy and the woman's offspring. But in that battle, the furthest that the enemy will ever get is under our feet. Did you hear that? Here's what I think is so unbelievably interesting. Who is God speaking to? He's telling the serpent the story of redemption. He's not talking to Adam and Eve right now. He's talking to the enemy, and he's telling him, there will be a crushing of your head and a bruising of, your, of their heel. There will be hatred between the two of you. But I'm going to make you very well aware of your position, devil. You're under their feet. You're under their feet. What is redemption? Redemption's story is that we are being bought back. Literally, that's what redemption means. It means to be bought back. We're being repurchased from something that's either been lost or forfeit. Redemption brings eternal life back to mankind, where in the fall, sin brought eternal death. And so through the blood of Jesus, we just sang it, through the blood of Jesus, we have redemption. A great definition is reversal of the fall. That's what redemption is. It is a reversal of the fall. Sometimes we'll tell people, go redeem yourselves for whatever fault or something that they've committed. And what we're basically saying is reverse what you've done and make it right. This is the story. I keep bumping this, sorry. Let me tuck this in my This is the story that our salvation should be telling because redemption is the foundation for salvation. If, the, if it weren't for redemption, we wouldn't need salvation. We're all dying and, and we're just going to live an eternal death because we've all engaged in sin. But because of the redemption story, it is the foundation for our salvation. Here's the equation. Who plus what equals redemption? That's the story that we need to be telling. And this is why the evidence of our salvation is so important. We can't lie to God about where our relationship is with him. We can't lie to ourselves about where our relationship is with him. And we certainly can't manipulate the world on what a relationship, a genuine relationship with Jesus looks like because they're watching, they're listening, they're seeking, and they're looking for evidence. They're looking for a what and we have to help them see that there is a who. 
and we definitely can't contaminate it. If we contaminate the evidence, we will distort the most beautiful story in the world, the story of redemption. We've got to understand that the enemy is going to do everything he can to come between that story. Everything he can to throw in whatever plot he can distract us with. Everything he can to manipulate the gospel. He wants us to feel so unworthy by our sin that we could never even think to ask God for forgiveness. He wants us to feel so gross and disgusting by the sin and the decisions and the acts that we've done that God would never, ever even think to redeem us. He does it all the time. I guarantee you we've all met some people who say, oh, I, I could never go to church. They would never accept me there. We hear it all the time. And unfortunately, it's because evidence tells a story. And somewhere they got the story that you're not worthy enough. First of all, we don't ever live up to the gospel. We live in the gospel. If we tried to live up to the gospel, we would try to be attaining something, which means it becomes unreachable at that point, at some point. We don't live up to the gospel. We live in the gospel. We need to immerse ourselves in the gospel, wrap it around ourselves, and everything we do is for the glory of God. So how do we portray this evidence and tell the story about redemption for ourselves and for the people who are watching and listening? Do we really believe what's in this book? I mean, we, we come to church, we say we believe it, but remember, believing is not enough. We've got to put it into practice. Do you know how many stories are in here that we just talk about? But do we really put it into practice? Do we really believe the story of Jericho? Do we really believe that Joshua marched around the walls of Jericho and they all came down? Do we believe that story? Do we put it into practice? Because for many of us, we live with strongholds in our home, strongholds that have been brought in through media, through television, through music, through whatever. I would commission all of us that we walk around our home praying and shouting unto the Lord for six days and on the seventh day, we do it seven times and watch those strongholds come down. We've got to put it into practice. We can't just say we believe it. We've got to put it into practice. Do you really believe that David stood up against a nine-foot giant and took him down with one pebble in his slingshot? Come on now. Do we really believe it? If we believe it, then we need to put it into practice. Are we standing up to our giants, the things that are way, way bigger than us? Or are we running away from them because we're scared? We're afraid to engage in the battle. 
We forgot the redemption story that tells us the furthest place the enemy will ever get in our lives is under our feet. Do we really believe that God is in the business of reconciliation? That he can reconcile, heal, and wound relationships no matter how painful they are? If we believe that, then we need to put it into practice. Do you know how many marriages in the church are running to divorce court and they go stand before a judge with this term, irreconcilable differences? Have you even given redemption a try? We've switched judges. I want to speak to marriages just for a moment. I just feel impressed to speak to marriages for a moment. Husbands, love and cherish your wives. Love and cherish your wives. Wives, honor and respect your husbands. Wives, be lovable so that men your husbands can love and cherish you. It's hard to love a cactus. <laughs> Listen, things like nagging and complaining and gossip, it repels men. It repels us. Men, be respectable. It's hard to love a grizzly bear. Women don't like to be lectured. They don't like to be spoken to harshly or gruffly. Husbands, pray for your wives. Wives, pray for your husbands. Husbands and wives, pray together, fast together. Fight for your marriages together. We're not supposed to be fighting against each other. We're supposed to be fighting for each other. Marriages tell a redemption story. And if we believe it, we need to put it into practice. Do we really believe the story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? I mean, come on. These guys being thrown into a furnace and surviving it without a speck of hair being singed, and they come out of the furnace, and you wouldn't have even known they were in the furnace because they didn't even smell like they were in the furnace? Do we believe that? Then why do we freak out when the flames of life come upon us? None of us are ever going to escape a furnace season. None of us. Some fires destroy and some fires refine. And if you are in a refiner's fire, just know that Jesus is in the midst with you and all you have to do is worship your way through the furnace. That's called furnace faith. You worship your way through the furnace. Do we have that furnace faith? Do we really believe it? Evidence tells a story. What about Ezekiel? prophesying into the valley of dry bones and seeing life come into these bones. Is that really true? Do we, do we really believe something like that? Because if we believe it, then none of us should be sitting in this room today with dead dreams. None of us should be sitting in here with dormant gifts that we haven't activated in decades. If you believe it, put it in to practice. Speak over 
yourself. Speak life into yourselves. The same way Ezekiel spoke into the valley of dry bones. Put it into practice. Do we really believe that Jesus hung on a cross, shed his blood for our sins?